Well, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Last week we looked at four verses, which might be a record here on this study at one time. Uh, today we're going to be looking at one phrase of a single verse, uh, but we're going to see as it relates to the prior four verses and develop it in that fashion. The, we, let's back up and read from last week, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, and then we will read just the first line, really, of Verse 5, it says, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. We stop there because we're going to be looking beyond it into some general categories of uh, exhortation to the church. And certainly its context is the same word, this concept of submission, and the premise of submission, which is humility. And we'll be looking at that more extensively next week. I uh, really want to talk about the relationship between uh, the leadership and the people, the laity of the church. And we looked last week at the leadership. What does God require of it? What is the expectations there, uh, both in qualifications and in uh, function? We tried to distinguish and yet identify that this is a single office and that the motives for holding that office are sometimes as important as the other qualifications. Why are you doing this? We didn't develop that extensively, but we see it again and again that we are not to do it um, out of compulsion, we're supposed to do it willingly, that we're not supposed to do it for dishonest gain, uh, but have an eagerness to serve, that we are not uh, doing it to have power over others, but rather to serve others, and we are doing it as an example to others. We are called to exemplary uh, conduct and attitudes. And so we see that the motivation is Peter's concern. Why are you doing this office, this role? And this is going to come into play extensively when we get into the concept of the relationship between elders and their people. And again, we come into verse 5 and we see a word right away that says, Likewise which means we're dealing with the same realm of information. In other words, just as we have some instruction for those who are the elder shepherds, bishops, we have instruction for those who are under them. And the, uh, the term there, younger people, really refers to not just, we often look at younger and assume that to be an age situation, but that wasn't always the case in, in, the, in the Greek concept of what is younger uh, but rather somewhat newer, uh, and we could talk about your spiritual age, and also just that maturation. And so this is really to counterplay the concept of elders. And we talked last week that the elders are not necessarily just the old people in the church, but rather those that God has worked in them to call them into that office. And we saw an example of that last week in Timothy, who obviously was not an elder, an older one, and yet he served the capacity as one who preached the word and led and, and, and even exercised authority in the church as an elder. 
and that is that office that is not necessarily connected to your age. And similarly, here the idea is that there is some other information for the younger people. And isn't it nice, Mrs. Fry, to be called the younger people? I had to pick on the oldest person here. The, the younger ones. Well, I'm not an elder of the church, so I'm one of the younger ones. Yes. And that subordination role um, that is communicated in the Greek terms of elders and younger, uh, not necessarily uh, your chronological age. That's not the priority here at all. And so he talks about, likewise, just as God has expectations over the leadership, he has expectations over those that uh, follow that leadership. And while Peter focuses on a single element of that, it is multifaceted. And other passages have called us to the other facets of what it means to have this relationship within the church between leadership, specifically the pastor, elder, bishop, and the laity, the congregants. What other good words are there for the church? That we have a... a, healthy relationship when we acknowledge that God has established these roles, that one is not greater than the other, and certainly that is necessary if we really understand the concept behind uh, both submission and uh, overseeing, and that is that we do it out of humility. I acknowledge that the greater struggle is to have leadership or authority and to exercise that in humility than it is to exercise submission because of its connection to humility, but it is the necessity of both offices, of both roles, to be cloaked in humility, hence next week's message. I don't want to get ahead of myself too much. But we come to this expectation that there is going to be a relationship that is understanding of one another, hence likewise. That you understand my role, I understand your role, we each understand our own roles, and that we elect, we choose to exercise ourselves within those roles, regardless of whether we view uh, or how we view those individuals who fulfill those roles. And this is very different than what I'm saying, is very different than understanding qualifications and the exercise of office. I'm talking about personality. It is not incumbent upon the church to like the personality of the leadership that God's established. That is really outside of the realm of what Peter and Paul and, and James and John all speak to, and even Christ himself speak to in terms of leadership. We have a necessity to study this, and we have a really strong example that we have a lot more passages with regard to and that is the relationship between a husband and his wife, that we have that same expectation of submission to leadership regardless of the skill set that either person holds individually in terms of the roles that God has established for us in our homes. We have them uh, there. And so likewise, we have it that as elders are commissioned to do the work of the ministry, which includes shepherding, overseeing, being an example, uh, we have an expectation of the laity. And while it is boiled down to a single word here, submit yourselves uh, to your elders. 
That word submission here used as a verb. In many other places it's used in a noun form uh, that we uh, are going to look at. We're going to look at some of those passages uh, that we see it used in that setting. But here we have it, an activity that you're going to be engaged in. But I want you to notice something uh, very important, and that is that you have responsibility for submission, not me. It says, submit yourselves to your elders. It is not my role to enforce that attitude of submission or that actions of submission. And some in the clergy have done that and said, well, um, I have to demand this. And, and they demand it in a, in a multitude of different ways. And I'm not saying that any of those ways are wrong because they do demonstrate an acknowledgement of that role, of that office, of the authority that's entrusted there. But it is not incumbent upon them to require that of their people. Uh, I cannot force you to submit it is your choice. Uh, and in the context of the whole New Testament, God himself does not force man to submit to him, do they? does he? He doesn't force you to submit to him. He invites you, he commands you, but he doesn't force you to submit to him. If that were the case, then everyone on earth would be obeying God, and one day that will kind of happen. When we find Christ Jesus coming, uh, for the millennial reign, it says he comes with a rod of iron. That is that there is an enforcement, that a judge that is enforcing this and that there has to be compliance. There really isn't any other alternative. Uh, and if you don't comply, you, you could not comply, but there is a punitive action immediately following. It is not for me to exercise that kind of authority. It is not what is expected in the church. And hence the command isn't, Overseers, pastors, elders, make sure your people are submissive. There is no such instruction here. There is one that's kind of close to that, and we're going to look at that, and, and because it could be brought up, and that's what those kinds of pastors bring up. Uh, but we're going to look at that one and see that really even in that context, it is not incumbent upon or required of or expected of the pastor to... Uh, force that kind of response from his people. It should be an earned response, certainly, and we're going to be looking at the expectations of the office by the people, and that this isn't a blind submission. This is a knowledgeable one that requires more from you. It is much more complex than simply, he's in charge, I'm going to do whatever he says. That's really not understood by this word. And the term, by the way, that concept of submission in Scripture is really derived from a military uh, position, from a military concept, especially this verb, uh, from the military basically to uh, what we would say is to stand down. That stand down means simply I'm going to stand back or to remove myself from challenging that authority. But does that mean that uh, whatever he says goes. Well, obviously, we have scripture that tells us differently, and including all of those passages that warn us against false teachers who claim that authority wrongly, abuse it badly, and the church is, is, is placed with the responsibility of 
identifying that kind of bad leadership and removing it. And certainly that comes into play. So let us not think that because of the simplicity of this term that the concept is simple. We understand the complexities of submission just as we have already understood the complexity of ruling. We see in verse 2 that that is the one thing that, that Peter wants to communicate to shepherds, to elders, is make sure you do this in a proper fashion. You don't exercise your role as a bishop with a heavy hand, but rather you do it um, as a manager, as someone who has a responsibility to answer to someone above him, who is concerned about those under that authority, and that we do not do it for my own interest, but for their interest, that we serve them. We are the stewards. And what does it require of a steward but to be faithful? Paul says, that's what's required. That's what the master is looking for. So I am not the Lord of this church. I am the steward here and cannot ever mix those two offices and recognize that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. He is the Lord and that we have this authority, but it is a derived authority from Christ and it is one to who, for which I have to be responsible. And so the complexity is there, the realization that, that this isn't such a cut and dried rule. And so let's look at a couple of other passages and we'll look at some of the uh, strange ones that are abused, I believe, in many instances. But these will tell us and give us a fuller understanding, really, of what it means to submit to your to the elders of the church. And so let's go, uh, first of all, to Timothy. Well, let's go to Hebrews first. I've been debating which one I wanted to go to first. Let's go to Hebrews, because it brings in another concept, uh, which is very important. We're in chapter 13, the last chapter of the book of Hebrews. We're going to pick up in verse 15 to get a context of this that is in a, in a passage that really talks about various uh, instructions for the church. It says, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you, and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls, as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. So we have within the context of the activity of the church, uh, all the things that we are called to do and, and, and placed in here very carefully is a pretty extensive discussion of, for, for just a single verse, of your relationship with your pastor. And so he says, first of all, the action of submission is to obey. Part of submission is to obey. And we understand our ladies have heard that from me extensively that we, I, I, 
everyone that comes to me with their vows, and I look at their vows, and, and I am always looking at wives and saying, uh, you are brides-to-be. Uh, you're not promising to obey your husband. Why is that? You don't want to submit to his authority? Why is that? Why are, it seems to be one of the things that we want to remove from modern marital vows is that we're not going to obey. We don't like that. And yet that is one of the key elements of submission. In fact, it is one of the uh, core definitions of what it means to be submissive, is that I will obey. And again, the terminology here is derived from the military realm that you're going to obey. He has the authority. I am going to obey that. I may not agree with that. I may not uh, understand it, but I will obey it. And, and hopefully it's within the, the capacities that I have to perform. And that is what is described here. And that is the, one of the core elements of submission. You cannot say, I'm submissive to Christ or to my husband or to the, the authorities in my life and uh, be in an attitude of disobedience. And hence we find that we are to obey those who have authority. That term uh, here in verse 17, that rule or oversee over you. They have that uh, expectation and they are there to do that function that God has given them that. And therefore they have some authority over you. And we need to recognize that. The authority is not derived from their capacities, from their abilities. It is not derived from their personality. It is not derived by, the, uh, by a comparative analysis of their uh, execution of their office. It is derived from God who puts it in the hearts of men to serve him in that capacity. But if their motives are not divinely originated, then that will be exposed, won't it? The Bible promises that. It will be evident. And so, but what we are recognizing that, well, we will always give them the benefit of the doubt to a degree. And the ultimate authority that rules over them is one that we share. That is that we all have the expectation of being submissive to God, Jesus Christ, through his word. We recognize that divine authority uh, that he has to be held accountable to. But the underlying understanding is that we're going to obey those and be submissive. We're going to obey those and, and, and as much as, as we are able to, to be submissive. But what happens when that authority is in error? What happens when that authority is wrongly motivated? What happens if that authority is disqualified? And that becomes the struggle that so many churches engage in. How do we do that? How do we rectify that? How do we exercise ourselves in such a manner to respect and honor the office of pastor, elder, bishop, uh, and still have to deal with an individual that is holding that office that is disqualified? Even this week, we received a letter from our association, General Association of Regular Baptist Church, I just received it yesterday, in fact, that our national rep has been removed from office for choices he made which were not becoming or were unbecoming of the office that he held. No specifics, but somehow something happened this past week 
that came to the attention of the Council of 18 and have removed him from office. And, and unfortunately, we can only conjecture what that entailed because they would not communicate it to us. Uh, and uh, I assume that is some sin, but we don't name the sin for some reason, uh, which is, I think, um, an error because now you invite speculation, don't you? But the necessity was that when there is a disqualification that we have a removal from office and that falls upon the church's shoulders. How do we correlate that to obey and submit when we have this problem? And again, we have some great examples in Scripture uh, from even pre-salvation. We have the Berean church who is extolled for what reason? Because they examined the scriptures to see if what they were taught was true. And this is incumbent upon the local church to do this. Do you remember that with one of the instructions that Paul's going to give and, and really shepherd the flock, that we are to teach them God's word. We are to preach the word, he tells, Paul tells Timothy, but the expectation is that the leadership will be communicating the truth of God's word. It is then incumbent upon the church to receive that with the authority of God's word, but also to discern that against God's word. That is, that if there is something there that is an error to the rest of the scriptures, that we call out that error. And that is not being unsubmissive, that is not being disobedient. Again, every New Testament book I find warns us, save one or two, warns us about false teachers. Well, what is the standard we use? Well, if the standard is of righteousness. We're going to look at that when we talk about being examples. But it's also going to be, how are they handling God's word? And it's not whether I like what I'm hearing or not. I hear this a lot from people. And over the course of my decades in ministry now, uh, I've had lots of people say, oh, this person, this person, and they name off their favorite uh, preachers, uh, usually from radio, television, internet. Uh, oh, you got to listen to this guy. And I go off, and I do. I go, and I want to know who you're listening to, uh, because probably if you're listening to it on the radio, you're hearing more of that person than you're hearing of me just by sheer time, all right? Because I've got maybe maybe hour and a half of your attention for a week. That's if you come to both services, right? And the probability is you're listening to these guys much longer than that, much more frequently. And so I go and listen, and I scratch my head, and I'm like, they think this is a good pastor, you see, I'm not looking at the delivery. I'm not looking at the charisma. I'm not looking at any of that. You call me to go listen to this guy. I'm going to have my Bible open, and he better be right on target with this scripture, or I'm going to have a problem with him. And so then I have to get out there, and I have to go, whoa, why are you listening to this guy? I listened to one sermon, and here's what I got. I got 15 points that I have a problem with him on. I had to write that letter once. And this is what you're feeling, you're calling this a good pastor, a good preacher. What we really, what I found is that most people, when they talk about a good preacher, is someone who either is a really good motivational speaker, which doesn't make him a good preacher, 
or is someone that, you, that, that tickles your ears, and we have a good warning about that in Scripture, don't we? That gives you things that you never thought about or heard about, and oh, that's interesting to me. He holds your attention. But if you are spiritually infantile, what does it take to hold your attention? Cartoons. Not substance. And, and I have all these, and, and, but so whenever someone says, well, they're a good preacher, and I go, I, I usually ask them why. What makes them a good preacher? Because I've come to distrust that statement. I mean, there are men preaching on television to tens of thousands of people in arenas that are horrible in their handling of God's word. But they are popular. And so I have to ask reason. Ask, why do you think they're such a good preacher? I've listened. They're preaching error. And yet you choose that that's where you go. Well, because I find, you know, it's, you know, it's uplifting. It's this. And I'm like, that's an infantile response. A mature believer would do what Paul says. Well, they're not teaching what Paul taught. And therefore, now I have cognitive dissonance. I have to choose. And Paul says, listen, if you grow up, you'll learn that this is the truth. Grow up, you younger people. And recognize that the handling of God's word is a serious matter that needs serious evaluation from a biblical perspective, not from how it makes you feel. I'm always a little disconcerted if I walk away from a sermon never having been challenged or convicted of something in the context of it. That's one of my evaluation tools that I use when I go and visit churches or pass, hear pastors or listen to them on these other uh, venues. And so we are called to be obeyed and to submit, but we have to recognize that that still requires more of us than blind submission. And we know that even in a military standing, that it's not sufficient to say, I was just following orders. That's going on today all over the world. And it's not just military, it's police. We're just following orders. And we have police arresting people and putting them into concentration camps right now in various places of the free world uh, based upon following orders of those that say, well, you posted this on Facebook, you have to go to prison. You uh, went to this party, so now you have to go to this concentration camp for two weeks. And we're just following orders. Don't blame us. Well, at some point there is a responsibility. And the church cannot lie down on that and say, we're just doing what the pastor told us to do. No, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. You have God's word available to you. The concept of submission and obedience and God's word is much more mature than that. Here is the premise of the command, be, obey and be submissive. Here's the premise. Here's the foundation behind it. And it is this. They watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. That is what earns the conduct of the church to obey and be submissive. 
is to see that they are concerned not about their own interests, but at the interest of serving the gospel, the whole message of God's word to his church in a faithful manner, in an accurate manner that is for their benefit and not for his own exaltation. I don't really care what you think of me. I care much more what you think of the message. And not in terms of its delivery, but in terms of its content. And I have had some men who are really hard to listen to. I try not to be one of those. And I have sat under their ministries, and I'm like, you really probably should just go to a seminary where they pay to listen to you because that's about the only way I'd stay awake half the time. But I concentrate really hard. And sometimes they have an incredible amount of content that is invaluable. Because it's so meaty, you just, just, and it comes at you so quickly that you just have to pay that much attention, um, but it comes at you without this dynamic personality behind it. He's watching out for our souls as one who must give account. Is he ministering the word for applause, or is he ministering the word to make a difference in his people? And that is the underlying expectation that we're going to obey and submit because we recognize here is a man God has placed in my life that has my interests at heart, that is desiring to stir me up to love and to good deeds, to press me forward in my walk with the Lord. And for that reason, I choose, and it is your choice, not mine, your choice to submit and obey. To step, to stand down. To simply say, I respect his office, I respect his activity in that office, and the work and the energy that is put into his accounting is not only to us, it is ultimately to God, and therefore it is not whether he, if it, whether I like his preaching or not, it is rather whether it is the truth or not. And having said that, that then I submit to it. That means I'm going to be obedient. I'm not going to walk in disobedience to the expectations, not only in terms of theology, but of the practice of that theology as well. Because they're watching out. Their motivation is your interests, not their own pocketbook, not their own acclaim. It is simply that I want you to grow in the Lord and succeed in your walk with God and knowing that I have to give an account for every single word. Not to you. That would be easy. To God. Wow, that's, that's a struggle. And so, why is that attitude from you so important to me? Um, not because I'm going to demand it of you, but because, if you, because it helps me do my job better. What is the difference between preaching out of joy and preaching out of grief? I think all of you have heard pastors preach both ways. Maybe not if this is the only church you've been to. I, I try very hard not to preach out of grief. I work really hard at that. And it helps to do it expositionally. Um, occasionally I have preached out of grief. I've never enjoyed it. 
which would make sense because I can't enjoy what isn't done with joy. To preach out of grief is how Paul wrote Corinthians and Galatians. It is necessary, and it can be very profitable for the church to a degree, but ultimately it means that pastor is frustrated, discouraged. He is seeing a disobedient church and recognizes that what I really have to do is preach at them instead of to them. That they aren't with me in the attitude of being obedient to God's word. And it is not as profitable for you. Because we are setting up an adversarial situation where it is them against me and, and me against them. Or, and, and that is never profitable to the degree that God expects from the church. Now, are there adversarial conversations in God's word that we have recorded for us? Yes, even between leadership. Between Peter and Paul, there was an adversarial conversation there that Paul recounts for us to remind us that we have to challenge things when the things are done in dishonor to God's word, in disagreement with God's word. Uh, we have to challenge those things. And, and that's a sad thing to have to do from the pulpit. It's a sad thing to have to do during a love feast, to stand up and, and say, what's the problem over there, Peter? You get up and leave and go over and eat with them because they got here. Now you can't eat with Gentiles because Jewish people arrived from Jerusalem. And now we need a little mini sermon, a little of our love feast. Well, how hard was it to finish that love feast? Was it joyful? We don't know how it ended out. Apparently by Peter's statement about Paul, Peter is okay with that. Peter was probably sensitive to recognize his error. Oh, that we would understand that the, if you complain about preaching being from grief, there is what, the question is, if he is rightly a motivated pastor, where, what is bringing the grief? Where is it originating from? That means that there is opposition to his teaching, to God's word, to, its, to the exercise of that teaching in the church that he feels incumbent to preach out of a, a grieving situation. Most of the Old Testament prophets preached out of grief. What did it produce? It didn't produce repentance, did it? Go through them. All those Old Testament prophets, even Jeremiah, weeping. That was grief, right? Weeping over his people. Why won't you obey God? Why won't you get rid of these idols? Why won't you stop the syncretism of worshiping Jesus and everything else in the world? Why won't you stop? That was preaching from grief, and it did not produce repentance. It should have, but it didn't. It only brought judgment. And that's why when the book, author of Hebrews says, listen, you want your, if you want your preacher to preach from grief, realize the profitability of that kind of preaching is small. It's tiny compared to what you could profit from preaching from joy to preaching to a flock that says, we want to learn more. To that group when, when the 
reforms of Josiah found the, the text of Scripture hidden in a wall in the temple, and they all wanted to hear, and they all wanted to obey it. What joy there was. That with one accord, they said, this is wonderful. We're hearing the word of the Lord, and let's obey it right now today. Let's not hesitate. Let's not put this off. Let's be obedient to it. That's preaching from joy. That with one accord, we say, we want to obey the scriptures. And even Paul and the Thessalonians says, this is my joy, is to preach the word to people who want to hear it and are responsive to it. That response is obedience. When you stand against it, instead of standing down to it. Oh, you have all your reasons, all of your rationalities, but if you stand against what is being taught and practiced in the church uh, by this leadership, and recognize that you are causing a grief in the preaching. And you are not being submissive. Stand down. You have all your reasons. That doesn't mean that they're valid. It just means that you hold them. You have a lot of reasoning in your life that isn't valid. So do I. That's why we go to God's word to discern truth and not your own personal beliefs. And so we stand down. Stand down means I think I, I have a platform and I have a right and all of this, but I surrender it. I stand down because you have the authority. In the military, you have the stars, you have the clusters. I stand down. I don't have that. That you would greatly profit from those that minister over you. Let's go to the other passages that we want to look at that also delineate some of those responsibilities. And this, of course, is in Timothy's, or Paul's writing to Timothy. And we're going to be looking at a couple of passages here um, in Timothy. In 1 Timothy, I'm sorry. Let's see which one I want to begin with. Let's start in verse 17, then we're going to go back. Oh, chapter 5, verse 17, then we'll go back into chapter 4. Chapter 5, verse 17. It says, let the elders who rule well. And there again, the concept of rule is overseeing, the elders is elder. Be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, the labor is worthy of his wage. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning, rebuke them in the presence of all, that the rest may also may fear. Uh, so we come to this, and almost every time this, context, this passage is used, most of the time it's used, we've got to pay our pastor well. Um, because we confuse <laughs> the instruction with the example. The example given is, uh, you know, don't muzzle the ox as it's treading out the grain, and um, the labor is worthy of his wages. So he has two examples to illustrate a principle. And we confuse one of those examples with the principle. Okay? What is the principle? The principle is count elders who rule well with worthy of double honor. Honor, and then honor them again who do their job well. 
Now we have two examples of this. One is, is that as the ox is going about his job of threshing and grinding and all of that, feed him while he's going. Okay? And the other one is, if you have an employee, hire him what he's worth. Right? These are two examples of how you take care of those who are working for you. The ox is working for me. He is benefiting me by keeping me from trying to do a lot of manual labor. He's doing a lot of labor for my well-being, for my benefit, for my food production. And so it would be wrong for me not to feed him similarly. Okay? He's producing food for me. It's ridiculous to expect him to keep working without feeding him. Notice the reciprocation. Similarly, my employee is making me money. It is ridiculous to think that he shouldn't make some money while he's making me money. That's the principle, reciprocation. And that's really what's going on right now, isn't it? You know, how, how much more money do, do billionaires need uh, to keep normal people from making a living wage? Well, the answer is walk away, and that's what people are doing. You walk away, because now suddenly, how do I make my billions? How do I keep my making more billions if I have no employees? Well, I know it sounds like communism, but share the wealth a little bit, and I'm not really against the concept of a living wage. Um, the problem is it usually just means higher prices because billionaires don't want to give up their billions and just make hundreds of millions. So we come to this. These are two examples. So this person is working to make you money. Pay him. Pay him. An honorable wage compare, in comparison to how he is benefiting you. So we come into these two examples. So that means you should be feeding your pastor and paying your pastor, right? So if your pastor isn't fat and rich... You're not giving him honor. Come on, you know that's how people have been using this passage, haven't they? And that's an abuse of this passage. These are two examples in other categories to refer to something in the church of a whole different nature. And the people that confuse these are the same people that abuse the parables because they don't get that we're using physical things to talk about spiritual realities. This is not telling you to pay your pastor more and to make sure that his cupboards aren't empty, to make sure he's fat. No, because my ministry to you is not in those categories. What is the ministry of a good pastor to his people is to feed the flock. Obviously, Jesus was not talking about making sure that you had breakfast this morning. He's talking about feeding you spiritually. And thus, he, that is what my job is. My job is to make sure you are spiritually cared for. And if I do that job well, if I am ruling well, as one who has given account, and we're going to see preaching the word, labor in the word and doctrine, that I want to make sure that my teaching is accurate to the scriptures, that its practice is evident to those around, that it is required of our 
membership of our people, that they be obedient to God's word, that is an expectation there, that we are traveling this road to spiritual maturity together with great joy, then here is the expectation. He'll be worthy of double honor. What does that mean? I'm not talking about your material things. We're talking about spiritual things. How do you spiritually honor the pastor who makes, who, who, studies God's word to make sure that his message is accurate to its principles and truths, to make sure it's communicated effectually and consistently, to make sure that that is true not only of his personal ministry, but of all of the various ministries of the church, which means I have to look at Sunday school material and make sure that it's not getting off base. And sometimes I have to, and my wife brings it to me, and she's like, look at this. And I say, I'll just rip it out. Okay, just rip it out. Because it's not in keeping with God's word. The Bible is very clear that God created the sun, moon, and the stars on that day. It had nothing to do with the planets. When regular Baptist press comes out with Sunday school lessons, they're all about the planets. And when God's word says he created the sun, moon, and the stars, why can't we be satisfied with that? Because we're ignorant of the fact that planets means wandering stars. Right? That's what the word means. It comes from, derived from Latin. So we come to this and we say, well, how do I spiritually show double honor to those who are ruling well, who are doing the job well? And we're not talking about the physical, we're talking about the spiritual. Well, Paul tells us, and we're going to be talking about that tonight, so I hate, no, is it tonight or next week? Sunday night we're going to be spending a whole study on it. Uh, I think one of the ways that you spiritually honor your pastor is to pray for him. Are we praying for him? Not against him. Are we praying for him? I've heard about, I've never really experienced it because I don't think my, pa- my parents never really did this, about roasting the pastor on the way home. Of people evaluating the sermon and, and all of this and, and uh, taking issue with different things said and uh, in the, even in the vehicle on the way home or later on. And, and I often wonder, well, do they pray for him? Because that would be how to honor him. And if you really have cause to roast him, what are you doing not addressing those things with him directly instead of in the car on the way home? I think even here, it's giving honor is about giving him the respect of that office. In verse 19, I think we have in Paul's mind what that involves. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Are you willing to, re- to believe every bad thing that anyone ever says? Because there'll be plenty of people that'll do it. There have been plenty of people in the life of my ministry that have said some pretty nasty things about me, my family, and my ministry. Occasionally, it actually gets said to my face, sometimes by accident. Within my hearing, I should say, right to my face, within my hearing. Don't receive that accusation. Don't entertain those ideas. If there is some 
claim against him, then there better be with many witnesses in a setting, in a context that recognizes this is an office that is set aside by God within the church that we are to be submissive to, that we are to stand down as much as possible. The only time we stand against is when we are clearly on God's word and he is clearly not on God's word. Otherwise, we stand down. And how, what does that look like? It says, I'm not going to accuse him. I'm not going to make that accusation against him. And if I do, I'm not going to do it under my breath. I'm not going to do it in the privacy of my home. I'm going to do it in front of two or three witnesses to his face. And we're going to do it right because we honor that office. And the man that stands in it. That I don't want to hear your complaints about it that I will not entertain those kinds of conversations and those kinds of ideas because he is ruling well. And that is certainly part of double honor. When we look at Paul's expectations, we look at other letters he's written to the Philippians, to the Colossians. What is it that it was his joy? What is it they always wanted to hear? What did John always want to hear about his children? That they are walking in truth. You want to honor your pastor with double honor because he's doing a good job? Walk in truth. Because if he's really doing a good job for your benefit, like Hebrews says, that he's watching out for your souls, the best thing you could do is to help him by walking in the truth. That shouldn't be the main motivation, but it could be one that puts you over, the, <laughs> over that uh, edge of deciding whether you're going to walk in the truth or not. This is the context here. Let's not take this and abuse it by saying, well, we need to pay him. Uh, we need to feed him. Rather, recognize that in like manner, as he ministers to us, we have responsibility to minister to him. That's your responsibility. To minister there on a spiritual level of being alert in church. You ever think about how much that honors the pastor? To be alert in church. Enough said? What does that take from you? Well, it's a warm room today. Is it warm to you? It's warm in here. And that's honoring. I mean, I don't think you'd appreciate me sleeping at the pulpit. Just wait, I've got to take a nap. Oh, I'm going to honor that. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be ready and to participate and to be prepared. These are the things that matter. You know what I'm preaching on next week. The other half of that verse. Are you prepared? Are you ready to engage? It is fun to preach to a people that want to hear a message. You want to have double honor? These are the nature of ministry for a pastor. I would rather preach for free to people with wide open eyes and ears than to be paid six and seven figures to allow you to sleep during church. There's no joy in that. 
when we start thinking about what it means to double honor, now we come into the, what if I were him? What would I want from a congregation? That's what I'm thinking. If I were you, I wouldn't want to come and listen to nothing of any value or someone spout off his own opinions. That's not what I would want as a growing believer. I want meat. I want nutrition. I want to be strengthened. I want to be challenged. I want to be encouraged. I want to be rebuked when that's necessary. I want to, I want to be informed. I want to be instructed. I want all of that. And that's hard. To, I don't expect that all in every sermon, but over the course of the weeks and months and years and decades of being in a church, that's what I expect. That's what I would want. And so that's what I want to provide to you as a congregation. What do you think a pastor wants from his people? And attentiveness is, is a very small thing. Obedience is a powerful thing. I find it interesting that in October all the churches are concerned about honoring their pastors and usually that means sending them on a trip or giving them gifts and things like that And um, during Pastor Appreciation Month and I often wonder, do they all stay awake during the month of October? If they could do it in the month of October, they could do it every month, couldn't they? It might require you to go to bed earlier on Saturday night. I don't know. It might require you to bring a cold water spritz with you and to make sure, but that'd be kind of weird. Of preparing and having an expectation that I'm going to be engaged with God's word with him. And so we have multiple layers here and it's, and it's doing a disservice to this passage to say that this is just about getting more pay because that's not what Paul's teaching at all. In fact, he teaches quite the contrary, doesn't he? It's the guys that are after the bigger salaries that you need to watch out for because that's the wrong motivation and get rid of them. They have no business being in the office of pastor. There's one other element, and I'm going a little long this morning, but um, I'm trying to get all from one phrase. I didn't even get through a whole verse. And that's also here in 1 Timothy. Let's jump over to chapter 4. There's another element of this. And I've already referenced this once this morning. It's in verse 12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which is given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue them from doing this. You will save both yourself and those who hear you. One other element of this relationship between us is that, and this is the passage, by the way, that says, let no one despise your youth, that therefore I have the authority to demand from you submission and respect and this is the passage that is often abused in that fashion. But, the, but this is a passive a, approach. What he's saying is don't let anyone despise you because you are such a good example no one can. It is not that I go out and demand your respect. It's that I have earned it to such a degree that, it, that no one even thinks of not granting it. 
This is not an invitation for the pastor to go around and browbeat people into recognizing his authority. And I've encountered some guys like that. Um, you know, if I use the wrong title, if I call them pastors, that's bishop. I call one guy uh, pastor, he says, I'm a doctor. It's doctor, so it's, oh, sorry. And so then he asked me my title, and you know, then the other was, it's reverend. <laughs> my dad hated that title, wouldn't ever use it. And if any pastor ever required it, he would get up and leave. Um, he would just turn around and leave that church if they required them to call him, to call the pastor reverend. Um, and uh, that one pastor, the doctor, I was like, oh, just call me shepherd boy. Just call me boy for short. Are we all about that? No, we're an example, and we don't demand that respect of that office. We earn it. And that's what Paul's telling Timothy here. Earn the respect of your people by being exemplary in all these areas. And these areas are really, again, a message to me to make sure that I am uh, an example in the, God's word, in my conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity, in the reading and exhortation uh, and doctrine. That I should be well read in the scriptures and even more broadly than that, to be exhortive in my preaching, uh, to being correct in my instruction and, and doctrine, uh, and that I don't neglect the gifts that are in me uh, that God has gifted me in, which might be different from different pastors. Is he a good steward? Is he meditating? And so all these, but I want you to notice that the public nature of this, in the end of verse 15 it says that my progress as a pastor should be evident to everyone. This isn't just progression in terms of maturity and the handling of Scripture, but this should be progression in my Christian walk, in my faith, in my purity, in my love, in all those things listed above there, my conduct, uh, in my spirit, that there should be progress. And it should be evidence, it's so evident to everyone in the church that this is a man who himself is trying to grow in the Lord and develop himself spiritually that there is no way we are going to despise him. And maybe nowadays it's don't let anyone despise your agedness. Don't let anyone despise you because you are such an example that they say, well, here is someone that is deserving of honor. And hence the, the honoring passage comes later in chapter 5. But we find here that it should be evident to everyone that this is a person who hasn't just hasn't arrived spiritually, but he is progressing spiritually. That there are still areas of growth and maturation that is going on in his mind, in his heart, and in his life. You should see that. You should be responding to that. You should be praying for that. You should be encouraging that. And sometimes that process of progress is undercut because people just want to hear the same thing they've always heard. And we can't ever get any progress. And this isn't new. 
Hebrews says, well, you and uh, several, <laughs> Paul, and you should be eating meat by now. I still have to feed you milk. Because all you want is milk, 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 milk. And I've encountered people in my ministry that condemn me. They say, well, you act like you're a, he says, I feel like I have to go to seminary to go to your sermons. You just want milk. That's all you want. You don't want to see any progress. Paul says, hey, it's time. You've been a believer this long. You should be chewing some good, hard meat. Juicy meat? You should be getting into it. Not this, give me a bottle. Okay. What did you learn today? Jesus loves me. Again? Still? Anything else? No, that's enough for me. Progress should be evident to everyone. Sometimes that process is, is a lengthy one. And now that I'm preaching through God's word again, having completed every passage, studying, I see some progress. I hope you do too. And sometimes that means some development and some changes, not only in doctrine, not in the core essentials, but in the practice of them, that we become more and more biblical in them. And then concluding in this chapter is the whole motive to not only save myself, yourself, the pastor, the the preacher, but also to save those who hear us. Again, I need to meditate. I need to be in God's word and the reading. I need to be uh, walking as an example. I need all those things. My progress needs to be there, not just for my benefit, but for your benefit. Right? What a disaster it is when pastors get up before their people and confess that I, I have to resign because I have this going on in my life or that going on in my life. One pastor in Tennessee, I remember, was a big deal when I was in college, I think it was, might have been in even high school, stood up before his congregation and says, well, I have to resign today because I got saved last night. I've been preaching to you all these years and I haven't been a follower of Jesus Christ. I just made a profession of faith with deacon so-and-so last night. Can you imagine the impact of that on a church? I kind of wonder what all the sermons were about now. No, for our, the benefit of the church is the progress of the pastor. And don't think that that progress is only my responsibility. Because this whole text started out with, don't let anyone despise your youth. Don't let this attitude from the church be against the progress of this individual to undermine it and to be suspicious of it always. Uh, rather, pour yourself into this so that certainly I have a lion's share of the responsibility to make sure that of, of my progress in Christ, but there is a requirement from the people as well to encourage that, to praise the Lord for it, to pray for it, to develop that and respond to it. 
that we might be saved together. And if you think that, well, pastor, you're so old, how can you progress any further? I want to remind you of Paul's statement in Philippians, at the end of Philippians, of what he was trying to do. Very late in his ministry, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, but I live on in the flesh, so this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what shall I choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to part and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. You see the correlation there in chapter 1 of his progress and your progress, that your progress and joy of faith is rejoicing in me. And then in chapter 3, he goes on to talk about his own development as an old preacher. Here's what he says. In verse 8 of chapter 3, I indeed count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also lay hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Paul made it very clear that as much as he had developed, there was still room for development. He was ready to go to heaven, yet he understood he was still here on earth to minister. And in order to minister well, requires that the minister be progressing. Constantly. And so he says, I haven't apprehended. I haven't arrived. I'm still pressing on. I'm still trying to find progress so that in my progressing, you can progress. We can progress together because as long as I'm here on earth and I'm, in order to minister, I have to be progressing spiritually. Because if I get in the spiritual doldrums, I know where you're going to go. And so we are going to press on together and we're going to attain to what we walk by what we know. And then if there's still some other thoughts, we will trust the Lord. So this is the relationship between a pastor and his people that God's word expects. It's all wrapped up in a very simple phrase. Submit. Let's pray. I've gone really late today, but I... Had a lot to say, I think. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for this opportunity to study your word. Lord, I thank you for this church. We pray that we might walk in your truth more and more, day by day. 
to your honor, praise, and glory. That we might make choices in accordance with the truths that we have learned and been assured of and seen in our leadership. We thank you again for this time together. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.